women's colleges accept all those aspiring to live, learn, and thrive within a community of women. This was the moment many students at Mount Holyoke College had hoped for. For months, student groups such as Open the Gates and the Coalition for Gender Awareness had advocated for their historically women's college to change their admissions policy. Previously, the college had accepted trans and non-binary students on a case-by-case basis, but these students wanted a clear and definitive affirmation that Mount Holyoke accepted applications from all trans students, including trans men, trans women, and non-binary people. And at a rally to kick off the 2014 school year, then-president of Mount Holyoke College, Lynn Pascarella, made it happen. Our new policy formally welcomes applications from any qualified student who is female or who identifies as a woman. On that day, Mount Holyoke became the second historically women's college in the U.S. to adopt an official policy accepting applications from trans students. And to this day, its policy is one of the most inclusive of the 35 historically women's colleges in the country. But what did this change mean for the college? Trans students had already attended Mount Holyoke for years because some students realized they were trans during their time at college. Mount Holyoke had also already admitted some trans students before the official policy change. So in some ways, not much changed. And a policy change wouldn't mean much if trans students who chose to attend Mount Holyoke didn't feel accepted and included. Hi, my name is Olivia Marble, and unlike the other student journalists you've heard from in this podcast, I'm not a student at UMass Amherst. I attend Mount Holyoke, another school in the Five College Consortium. So for this episode of It Happened in Amherst, I'm going to take you one town over to South Hadley, home to Mount Holyoke College. In this episode, I'll bring you the stories of three trans students and alums of Mount Holyoke to share their experiences after they were admitted and explore what it means for the school to be a gender diverse women's college. Mount Holyoke alum Malachi Chukis is a trans man who graduated in 2020. He medically transitioned during his time at Mount Holyoke So now, some people assume he's a cis man, until he tells them where he went to college. That's my favorite time, is when you run into folks who are like, where do you go to school? You're like, Mount Holyoke. And they're like, isn't that a women's college? And you're like, yeah. And they just stare at you for about 30 full seconds with the clock, the wheels turn in. Chukas identified as non-binary when he applied to colleges in 2015. But even though Chukas didn't identify as a woman, he wanted to attend a historically women's college. I have two moms. I grew up with lesbian parents. Um, Before my transition um, and before I even came out as trans, I went to an all-girls high school. So I think it was an environment that not only I felt very safe and comfortable in at the time, but one that I knew would be not necessarily accepting of me being trans, because I think that was a big question mark when I first started my transition. Um, But one that I knew was full of love. Um, And like every time I had ever been in a women-centered space, that is what I felt and how, you know, I felt very connected to that as a person, maybe not fully identifying as female or as a woman, but as a person. 
Chukas originally hoped to attend Smith College, but he worried about whether his transition would be accepted there because of its admissions policy. According to its website, Smith only admits students who identify as women, including trans women. Sky Karp, who graduated from Smith in 2021, is trans and non-binary. When Karp was a student, they were a member of Transcending Gender, the trans affinity group at Smith, which advocated for Smith to change its admissions policy to be more like Mount Holyoke's. Karp thinks the policy change would lead to other trans-affirming changes, such as a policy, like the one Mount Holyoke has adopted, to prevent faculty and staff from referring to the entire student body as women by default. It will trickle down to affect like a lot of other like policies or culture that affects trans students. Um, like it'll be really hard to like all women people all the time. Chukas heard about Mount Holyoke from a family friend, and after he visited, he felt his transition would be more accepted there than at Smith. He also felt like Mount Holyoke was the right place for him in general. I fell in love with it immediately. Uh, the environment, the people, just how friendly everyone was, um, and how I felt like I could be open and explore myself very openly um, in a way that would be very positively received. And he was right. He loved his four years at Mount Holyoke. Historically, women's institutions are unique for a lot of reasons, you know, but I think particularly because of the way that they allow communities to thrive and specifically very marginalized communities and communities that um, are typically kind of shunned in larger spaces. I've always found that there's a lot more room for, for self-expression and for growth and change in those spaces. And that's what I found when I found Mount Holyoke. Even though Chukas enjoyed his time at Mount Holyoke, he felt excluded from the college at times because of his masculine appearance. According to the ACHA National College Health Assessment, less than 1% of the 2,000 students at Mount Holyoke identified as trans men in 2018 and 2020. As he began to look more masculine, he says other students stared at him in classes and assumed he wasn't a Mount Holyoke student. He began to pay closer attention to how he presented himself, shying away from dressing or acting in ways that could be interpreted as stereotypically masculine. So it's like one of those like double-edged swords where like, yes, it is a very welcome and opening for transition, but how much can you transition without then being like othered, right, by your own community in a way? Um, and I think, I think it was more kind of like magnified for me, especially as a Black man. There is this kind of social construction around the Black body and the Black man in particular about being aggressive or being, you know, too, too loud or too controlling in spaces. And I definitely didn't want to perpetuate any of that. Early one morning, when he was a residential advisor at Mead Hall, Chukas heard something outside and ran to check on the noise. He forgot to bring his keycard with him. And after he realized nothing was wrong, he also realized he couldn't get back into the dorm without another student letting him in. He asked students who walked by to let him into his dorm, but he says they didn't let him in because they didn't believe he was a student, and he didn't have his student ID to prove otherwise. I definitely didn't at the time look like a traditional, quote, air quotes all over the place, um, student to some people. I had a couple of people ask me, like, what are you doing here? Like, kind of like a, like, 
what student do you belong to kind of question. And then it's like, no, I am the student, trust me. Like I, you know, I got locked out. A friend eventually saw Chukas standing outside the dorm and let him in. Chukas posted about the incident on Facebook and received many responses from people saying they were sorry that happened and emphasizing he belonged at the college. So I think in those moments, it's a little disheartening, you know, um, it does feel a little bit like your own community doesn't really see you, understand you, and or want you around. But I think in those moments, I also had enough friends and people I consider now at this point to be family um, in the community to like really rally and be like, no, we see you, you know, we're here, like acknowledging like we're sorry that happened, you know, but that's not, it's not how everybody sees, you know, you or, you know, your transition. The second student I interviewed is Sophie Soloway, a junior politics major at Mount Holyoke who is non-binary and trans. For as long as I can remember, I've had just a really hard time feeling connected to how people see me and perceive me. I don't think that's just because of my gender, but for a long time, it felt like there was this big question mark that was like hanging over my head. And I never thought that like, I just never felt like I had the language or the tools to really unpack that. And it just felt like this huge weight on me. Um, and kind of immediately, as soon as I started being introduced to language and conversations about not being cis and about identifying with genders or gendered experiences that are not like, prescribed to me by the sex that I was born with. I was like, oh, like that's what I've kind of been waiting for my whole life. Soloway came out as non-binary after coming to Mount Holyoke in 2019. They learned about non-binary identities in high school, but they'd felt disconnected from the label at the time because they'd learned about it through the lens of allyship. The ways that people were explaining it were like cis people explaining it as something that other people experience. Like it was like, some people feel this way. I had a really hard time for a while, like allowing myself to kind of take up that space and connect to that word. But that dynamic changed at Mount Holyoke. Non-binary people made up 14% of the student body in 2020, according to the National College Health Assessment. So when Soloway came to Mount Holyoke, they heard more firsthand experiences from non-binary students, which made them realize the non-binary identity matched what they had felt all along. I think just because there are so many people who are non-binary here, it became less of like an othering thing. And it was just like, oh, like a large percent of like the friends that I'm making in my first year of college or a large percent of the people that I'm sitting next to in class do use they, them pronouns or are non-binary or trans. And so maybe the ways that like cis people were talking about it didn't change, but being exposed to trans people sharing their trans experiences felt a lot less like far away from me. Soloway feels accepted by other Mount Holyoke students, but they sometimes wish the school's admissions office would highlight the experiences and stories of trans and non-binary people at the college more often in its admissions materials, instead of only focusing on women. I think that what I've noticed is that a lot of the resources that Mount Holyoke puts forward as far as admission, admissions is very sort of woman-oriented wording. Um, they really harp on the fact that they're a women's college without using um, sometimes more progressive words like historically women's or um, gender diverse women's college. Um, and they'll really amplify 
like women's stories and women empowerment, which is great, but it often feels like there's so much of that and less of kind of a narrative about how, how many other kinds of people are at the school and that we're also kind of part of that history. Mount Holyoke continued to call itself a women's college in the four years following the change to its admissions policy, but students who didn't identify as women felt the term excluded them. Kejua Sanders-McMurtry joined Mount Holyoke in 2018 as its inaugural Vice President for Equity and Inclusion and Chief Diversity Officer. She says many students, faculty, and staff had felt for years that people should stop referring to Mount Holyoke as a women's college, but they disagreed on what to call it instead. When I arrived at Mount Holyoke, people were really like all over the place, right? So they were like, oh, you know, are we a historically women's college? Are we, you know, is that appropriative of historically black colleges and universities to use like historically women's college? You know, do we, can we say that we are a women's college that is also, you know, open because will that invite cis men, you know, like there was just a lot of confusion. Sanders McMurtry and other college officials debated using terms like historically women's college, gender diverse women's college, gender inclusive women's college, and others. In the end, they decided to refer to Mount Holyoke as a women's college that is gender diverse. I think I was okay with women's college that is gender diverse because that's actually like what we what we are. We're a women's college that has people who identify as, you know, men, women, non-binary within the umbrella of trans. But the student body hasn't widely accepted this term. Soloway says placing the phrase women's college before the phrase gender diverse de-emphasizes the college's commitment to gender inclusivity. Even if it kind of seems trivial, I think that disconnecting those two parts of the identity of the school kind of makes it so that one is more important and comes first and the second part of that identity comes second. And I think that that is a little bit harmful. Many students, including Soloway, refer to Mount Holyoke as a historically women's college, a term similar to historically black colleges and universities. But Sanders McMurtry feels the term isn't accurate because being a women's college is a core part of Mount Holyoke's identity to date. It's probably not accurate to say like, we're no longer a women's college because that we still see women's education as really, really important and, and um and still center and core to who we are. In fact, it's, it's part of our radical tradition in many ways. Director of the UMass Amherst Stonewall Center, Jenny Beeman, is the author of Trans People in Higher Education, a book about the experiences of trans students, faculty, and staff on college campuses. Beeman refers to colleges like Mount Holyoke as historically women's colleges because they feel the term is more accurate. Mount Holyoke used to be a college that accepted only women, and now it accepts women and some people who aren't women. This is similar to historically Black colleges and universities that used to only accept Black students and now accept some people who aren't Black. Beeman thinks the language will likely change as other historically women's colleges change their policies, but they believe, ultimately, what matters most is transparency. How this is going to play out in the long term is, is still unclear and, and how what language will ultimately get used for, for colleges that have been women's colleges, we'll have to see. I don't think it matters as long as you're upfront about what your, your policy is and so that students know what, what to expect and also students can organize if they don't like that policy. Sanders McMurtry agrees being transparent about the college's policy is important. She previously worked at Agnes Scott College, 
a historically black women's college in Decatur, Georgia. The college's admissions policy is similar to Mount Holyoke's, but when she worked there, it didn't have its policy on its website, which Sanders McMurtry says caused confusion to trans students interested in applying. I used to have students call us individually and say, I've heard the college accepts, would accept me if I'm a trans man. Is that true? Well, what about all the students that don't call? To me, it's more harmful to not be clear that we are a place that wants to have people attend Mount Holyoke as long as they don't identify cis men. I think where those other schools operated ambiguity could potentially not only exclude people, right, but also be like very hard for the person who's trying to figure out, like, I just want to know, can I come there, right? Like, and be, and potentially be safe there. Like, that's the part that I never try to like overestimate. Even after Mount Holyoke's admissions policy changed, the confusion about whether or not the college accepts applications from trans students still existed, at least according to junior anthropology major Nadia Davis. Davis is one of only a few trans women who attend Mount Holyoke. As of 2020, trans women made up less than 1% of the student body. Davis was a prospective student in 2017, just three years after the admissions policy changed. So just a few years earlier, I might not have even been able to look at the school, much less apply to the school. Davis says she's spoken with other trans women at Mount Holyoke, and they said they didn't realize at first that they were allowed to apply. They transferred from other colleges after they found out. She is the only trans woman she knows of who didn't transfer from another school. Davis says she wishes Mount Holyoke's admissions office would reach out to trans women to recruit them and let them know that they're allowed and invited to apply. She says currently, almost all of the other trans people on campus are assigned female at birth, or AFAB. When I'm in the dining hall talking about things like you know, trans rights or the masculine anatomy and so on, that I'm the one that has to be talking 100% of the time, unless we're talking about like trans rights that pertain to trans men and non-binary people that are AFAB. I think if you had more trans students on campus, especially trans women, that it would be easier for me to connect to campus and it'd be easier for me to not feel as though I have to speak up at every instance of trans discussion. Davis chose to attend Mount Holyoke because she's felt connected to womanhood since she was young. But her first few encounters with students and staff at Mount Holyoke were less gender-affirming than she'd hoped. When she visited as a prospective student, some people used he-him pronouns to refer to her. And her admissions letter addressed her by her dead name, the name she used before she transitioned. I vividly remember like checking my email and seeing like, dead name, you got accepted. It, it was crushing because this is supposed to be the women's college and they were referring to a man. She has felt othered by Mount Holyoke at times since she began attending the college three years ago. For example, she doesn't know which locker room to use. The athletic building's gender-neutral locker room is very small, and it's also the locker room opposing teams use when they visit campus. I've been using, whenever I've gone to gym class or uh, some other physical activity, I've gone to the women's restroom in the locker room. So like, I'm using the women's locker room, but I'm hiding in a stall because I don't feel as though I can really undress in the public space, you know, even though it's not like I'm, it's not like I'm fully stripping, you know, I'm like still changing into other clothes and so on. But it's, it's a very big concern of mine is that people will see me and immediately have some like negative reaction. Davis also shared incidents that made her concerned some other students don't want her at the college. 
Last semester, she presented a project about video games to her class, and she says the questions her fellow students posed to her afterward felt irrelevant and targeted. At least one student asked about gender and sex in um, in video games, even after I had made it explicitly clear that this had nothing to do with like identity politics and other forms of political um, conversations within video games. Um, they they asked like, how do you feel about sexism in video games in such a pointed way that I was immediately uncomfortable. Davis says moments like this frustrate her because she feels those students are not obvious enough in their transphobia to report them to school officials to address the issue. If it was vocal, I could say something about it. I could, you know, direct administration and staff to it. I, I could say, hey, please, you know, make sure that I'm away from these spaces. But because it's more implicit, I don't know how to protect myself from it. Gabriel Hall joined Mount Holyoke in 2020 in yet another inaugural position as the Assistant Director of Campus Diversity Programming and LGBTQ Initiatives. Hall says he is addressing concerns like Davis's through workshops educating students, faculty, and staff about the issues trans women face. He says workshops can help bring forward implicit biases that community members, especially other members of the LGBTQ community, may not realize they have. This is what happens when you're in a space where sort of folks feel like, oh, well, we're all XYZ identity here. Like, we're all queer, so we're all cool with trans folks. And it's like, actually, that's not even true, right? So a lot of the workshops and trainings is even just about surfacing those assumptions. Davis does feel accepted and included in some parts of Mount Holyoke, such as the college's video game club and role-playing club. It's definitely not all negative, otherwise I wouldn't still be here. It's a very positive experience. It's just I have felt this level of like muted inclusion and partial exclusion for a long time as a result of the way that uh, gender identity is represented and the way that it's talked about and the way that it's excluded in some capacities. So what did the 2014 decision mean for trans students at Mount Holyoke? No one policy change can make a whole group of people feel accepted and included at a college that, for a long time, didn't even accept their applications. But what this policy represented was a turning point in the conversation about trans students at the college. And since then, Mount Holyoke has had to continue to work towards being a more inclusive and welcoming space for trans students, because this work is never really done. On the next episode of It Happened in Amherst. In January, providers at University Health Services began preparing for an unprecedented change, the introduction of a minuscule resource that will revolutionize campus reproductive health services for every patient. New tonight, UMass Amherst plans to offer abortion medication. Abortion medication. Abortion medication. Can be taken to end a pregnancy up to 10 weeks. Student demand was a driving force behind this decision. Western Mass News reporter Kristen Burnell has the details. This is a, a medication that's been around for 20 years, used safely, and our students, faculty, and staff have asked us to provide this, and we want to try to provide it for them. That's next week on It Happened in Amherst. 
This episode was scripted and hosted by me, Olivia Marble, and edited by Olivia Marble, Rebecca Pereira, and Dr. Kelsey Whipple. Special thanks to Ivy O'Neill Odom, Kate Mallory, Jay Okterski, Latrina Denson, and Professor Amy Martin.